1: She was an ordinary schoolgirl from Bethnal Green, until one day in February 2015, when she and two of her school friends ran away to Syria to become jihadi brides. Now, Shamima Begum lives in the crosshairs of controversy.
2: I say this to the people that are so keen on having these people back into the UK. Let them live next door to you.
1: Earlier in this series, we heard from Anthony Lloyd, the Times foreign correspondent, who found Shamima Begum after the fall of Islamic State last year. And we explored the Syrian camps where she's been detained. It's
3: pretty out of control. and Some of the women have got silenced pistols. There are instances where women have been murdered for um, failing to adhere to Islamic State rules.
1: On Monday, a Supreme Court hearing was told that Shamima Begum is still considered a threat to this country.
2: Lawyers for the Home Office have argued that a woman who left London when she was a teenager to join the Islamic State group in Syria would pose a clear and present threat if she were allowed to return to the UK. As the
1: Supreme Court now deliberates on whether Shamima Begum should be allowed back to Britain to fight for her citizenship, we look at what would happen if she did return.
4: Prisons are breeding grounds for extremism. Unless these radical
1: jihadists have access to education, they're not going to change. Could de-radicalization be an option? Is it a process that actually works?
3: Everyone's worst nightmare is that somebody that you certify as de-radicalized then goes on to commit a terrorist attack, because that would be on your conscience.
1: Today, Bring Me Home, Part 3, De-Radicalising Shamima Begum.
4: When you're in a state of radicalisation, your life is consumed with fear.
1: That's Tanya Joya.
4: Fear of supernatural beings, fear of God, fear of hell, fear of Satan, fear of dying and being punished.
1: Originally from North London, she became a jihadist. She lived in the Caliphate with her former husband, America's most senior Islamic State member, Yahya al barumi who started life in Texas as John Thomas Georgellis.
4: We're also taught that this life isn't real, and that the next life, the afterlife is eternal and that's real. And that once we're there in the afterlife, we look back at this world and our lives here as a dream. If you go around just killing people when anyone dies, you just think, well, God's gonna judge them and he's the most fair judge and they'll just live on whether they're in hell or heaven. I really thought anyone who was fighting for the supremacy of Islam, I thought they were freedom fighters. At
0: the uh, World Trade Center, we understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. This is at the World Trade Center. Obviously a major fire there, and there has been some sort of explosion.
1: Apparently a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. So you have no idea right right now? There's another one, another plane just hit. Right, oh my God, another plane has just hit. It
4: hit another building.
1: Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. 9-11 changed the the world forever. It changed New York and the lives of New Yorkers. It changed global political alliances. It launched wars, ended peace, and it changed everything for Tanya Joyer.
4: I was around a circle of friends. We all believed we had to pick sides.
1: As a young girl growing up in a devoutly Muslim Bengali family in North London, it was a catalyst for Tanya's radicalisation.
4: Are we slaves to Allah or are we pretending that we're free in a democratic country where we basically feel like we're second-class citizens, we're in a country where we don't belong because we're constantly told that since we're young. And our parents didn't let us integrate because integrating into British society was seen as immoral and so as a young girl I wanted a community more than anything I wanted to be with a group that had God on their side because I was like you can't beat whoever God's team is and it was very just a childish way of thinking and I had a real disconnect with reality but I also didn't have a sound voice telling me what the truth was the reality and I just like, I I just thought that this you know the only way I'm gonna be a good person was to obey God and Muhammad, even if I didn't like the message myself.
1: Tanya's husband, an American convert, would go on to play a huge role in establishing the caliphate. He became the most senior American in the leadership of Islamic State. But when Tanya met him. He was just a young believer, like her, on a Muslim dating site.
4: He was this adventurous, rebellious teen that I could relate to on so many levels.
1: They shared a lot of the same radical views.
4: The idea of living in a state where you are free to practice Sharia law because you think that is the only law, because Allah says so in the Qur'an, four times, that there is no sovereign power except through him. And then you're also taught and indoctrinated that you're the good guys, and and unless we have all our community together under a state, we're not going to be safe. So at the beginning, the appeal for me really was just a dreamlike state. It was just a fantasy. I, I wasn't certain I would see a caliphate in my lifespan, but I thought maybe my children would.
3: In simple terms, radicalisation is a process of becoming a terrorist, and therefore de-radicalisation is simply the opposite.
1: Meet Osama Hassan. He's a research consultant in counter-terrorism at the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change.
3: Terrorists are not born, they're made.
1: So how are they made? And more importantly, how can you unmake them? Osama's expertise on counter-terrorism is informed by his own experiences. He was a jihadist.
3: I grew up in London from the age of five, uh, in the 70s and 80s, when Britain had many more problems with racism. in The Caribbean countries, uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, the Indian subcontinent. And later we saw waves of migration from Algeria and Somalia after the civil wars. We saw all of that in our mosque. In fact, I was 11 when I first led Ramadan prayers, would you believe, at Findrew Park Mosque, and I was 19 when I first led Friday prayers up at Cambridge Mosque. So in my teens, I became a Muslim community activist and became one of the leaders of the Western world's largest Salafi Islamist organisation.
1: Salafism is an extreme and very puritanical version of Islam.
3: And by Islamist, I mean a political ideology which uses elements from Islam uh, but has as its goal, the establishment of a worldwide Islamic state or caliphate.
1: And that was something you, you firmly believed in?
3: I believed in, yeah, for maybe two decades. I was a committed Islamist roughly from the age of 13 to my early 30s, say.
1: How how far did it take you?
3: I went as far as becoming a foreign fighter myself. So I actually briefly trained and fought with the Afghan Mujahideen in Afghanistan mm. when they were fighting against the Afghan communists who were supported by the Soviet Union. I was 19 at that time, a Cambridge University undergraduate. But during my Christmas holidays, I actually travelled to Afghanistan via Pakistan and spent some time, a week, at a training camp for Afghan Mujahideen and even 24 out of the front line, exchanging artillery fire with the Afghan communist forces. I was one of the leaders of the entire Islamist scene in Britain, which was connected to the international scene.
1: Like Tanya, 9-11 was a pivotal moment for Osama Hassan, but he went the other way.
3: Many of my friends uh, were celebrating the 9-11 attacks. That was the overwhelming response.
1: And how did you feel?
3: And I'll be honest, that was my gut reaction as well. That, really? uh, yeah, that attacking America was a good step in terms of revenge for all of the perceived anti-Islamic action of, of the United States for the previous couple of decades. But in my bones, I knew this was wrong, you know, uh, that attacking civilians was never the way. Those of us who had supported what we regarded as legitimate defensive jihad in places like Afghanistan and Bosnia, in the 90s, we were caught in a dilemma because one wing of this jihad movement had now metamorphosed into al-Qaeda and had decided to attack the West. And so we had to do a lot of soul-searching. And I remember those years after 9-11 were very torturous for me. I was in my early 30s. I was a father of two uh, little boys with my wife and I had to do some very quick thinking as to where the world was going and where I was and w- which side I was in, uh, in all this. Yeah. And it, it took me a couple of years, but I came to the firm conclusion that uh, we had supported jihad, but but not terrorism. And there was, there was a big difference between jihad and terrorism. Al-Qaeda had hijacked the notion of jihad.
1: How would you define jihad?
3: Jihad in the Quran is ultimately a struggle. The word itself means a struggle. Mm. And the original meaning of jihad in the Quran is a struggle for goodness against evil at all levels. That includes an internal spiritual struggle, but it includes a social jihad against the injustice. So jihad has many different aspects, but the military aspect of it is, is like very similar to just war theory, actually.
1: As a young man, Osama believed it was appropriate to fight if there was a just cause. And for that cause, he looked to al-Qaeda.
3: They had some actually legitimate grievances about Western support for dictators, for example, in the Muslim world, or for an imbalance on the Israeli-Palestinian question, etc. But the idea of attacking civilians in the West, or indeed anywhere, was just abhorrent, because myself and colleagues had actually traveled to war zones to carry out jihad. The idea of bringing jihad to lands of peace, if you like, or places which are at peace, like America and and later London, was just unthinkable uh, at the time. And also, I could see the future of Muslims in Britain, that the Muslim community was becoming more integrated. I increasingly became involved with counter-extremism and counter-terrorism issues. I found that This was quite a passion for me and it was very, very important.
1: Osama gradually became de-radicalised himself, without a formal programme. But for most extremists in Britain, de-radicalisation comes in the form of a prison programme called Healthy Identity Intervention, or HII.
2: It's typically conducted on a a one-to-one basis with a facilitator and, and a recipient,
1: Christopher Dean is one of the top psychologists behind the HII programme.
2: It is tailored depending on assessment, which is crucial, so that we understand the individual and that the work that's being completed is seeking to address those issues that are relevant to that individual. If
1: we could peek inside the mind of someone who is being radicalised, there would usually be a heady mix of disenchantment with the world they live in and the promise of rewards
2: if they follow a more extreme path. People become interested and involved uh, or begin to form relationships with these kind of groups or or ideologies for many different reasons. Some people may become interested because of things like grievances, because they feel uh, alienated from wider society. They may be looking for excitement in their life, prestige or status. They may be politically motivated in the sense of they may genuinely want a political or social change or redemption. Or some people may become involved because they seek criminal opportunities in being involved with some of these groups. So I think there are a whole myriad of motivations. But I think what's important to emphasise is whilst we know a lot of people become interested or involved in these groups, far fewer of those people are actually willing or prepared to step over that threshold to facilitate or commit acts of of, of violent extremism.
1: The struggle to pull people away from radicalisation is a complicated business.
2: Even if we think about ourselves, you know, if, if someone was to ask you to change those things you strongly identify with... You may have your own reservations about that, you may have your own arguments against that, and you may behave in ways to try and prevent those things from being changed or threatened. So part of the process is trying to help people understand why that process may be beneficial to them, to their lives. It's sometimes neither productive or helpful to challenge people's beliefs certainly when people start engaging in this kind of process because when you challenge beliefs or values that really matter to people again that can be felt felt as very threatening and often people can entrench their position because they want to confirm their own beliefs so what both in my experience and what research tends to show is people seem to have to or typically seem to have to disengage so what I mean by that is begin to change their relationship with a group or cause, have less contact with certain individuals, so more kind of behavioural steps, before they get to a point where they may consider changing particular beliefs. It's relatively unusual that individuals don't have any doubts or haven't got any grievances or some dissatisfactions with what they're involved in. There are, there are some individuals like that, but usually as most people have with other relationships or what we may call normal relationships in life, things tend not to be perfect. So there tends to be areas that we can work with to explore those in more detail.
1: In his work as a consultant, Osama Hassan also de-radicalises young men and women. For him, it's his past as a Salafi and jihadist that helps him to connect.
3: I tell many of these young men who I talk to about my experiences 30 years ago and say, look, uh, but there's a difference between uh, fighting a legitimate war and killing civilians or attacking civilians, which is terrorism, which is unacceptable and it's not from the Islamic teachings. What I do is I take them through the religious ideology bit by bit and show how the extremists are offering a very twisted and extreme interpretation of certain texts uh, and certain scripture, whereas there are many other interpretations, wider and deeper ones, and the diversity of which has existed for 14 centuries within Islam, which is something I'd learned along the way as well. Now, for many of these young people, young men and women occasionally, it is the same as it was for me when I was 18, 19, I'd only heard one interpretation and I believe that was the only legitimate or the only valid Islamic interpretation.
1: And when you have this conversation with them, I mean, are, are they quite open to sitting down and talking to you about the faith and about different interpretations of it? How, how, do, you, how do you approach the process of de radicalization with them?
3: In extremist circles, they're naturally suspicious of anybody trying to do de radicalization or anybody seen as part of the establishment you know, working with the with the government or, or promoting the government line. And you have to kind of gain their confidence and build trust. So, for example, one case which I dealt with a few years ago was a young man who would got uh, involved with pro-ISIS groups online and, in fact, was later convicted for a terrorist uh, offense. But his defense team actually contacted me to carry out de-radicalization sessions with him because they felt that would help him get a more lenient sentence. If we could be shown to the judge that he had been through some de-radicalisation sessions and had softened his views, then he'd be seen as less of a threat and would get a more lenient sentence, which is in fact what happened. But, you know, I spent with that chap, I think, four or five long sessions. We're talking about two, two and a half hours at a time. And he was open because he felt there was somebody trying to help him.
1: For Tanya Joya, the process of deradicalization happened more gradually and without the help of experts. It was a process that began when her husband was imprisoned in America for hacking.
4: John was in prison and I started becoming more independent. I wanted to integrate with American society because I loved the people. They were mostly very, very friendly and warm towards me, even when I covered everything from head to toe. The treatment I got in America was so different from the hostility I faced in the UK, just for being um, Bangladeshi, Asian, or for being a Muslim. I remember the first time where I heard the Declaration of Independence. The values are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And when I heard this, I just bawled my eyes out crying. And I was mad at John because I was like, John, you grew up with these values and i would never heard them before. I, I just started studying a lot, like constantly and just out of this thirst to understand why my life had turned into chaos. I understood political Islam was the acute cause of my suffering and the reason my family broke apart. I was, I was so interested in psychology because I understood that this would help make sense of where I went wrong, what was wrong in my pattern of thinking and my mindset, and with my husband and, and everybody and who were part of this jihad movement. And it really just helped put the pieces together, it helped me understand so much.
1: As her husband became more and more radical, Tanya, became disillusioned with the movement. I used to get
4: frustrated with Islam because I was like, I'm never good enough. I I wasn't born an Arab. And I don't like having this inferiority complex because I don't speak classical Arabic fluently or because I'm not 100% subservient to my husband or Muhammad. It was just a lot of conflict in my mind, which I couldn't stand and I didn't cope with.
1: At first, Tanya, Her husband John and their children lived in Egypt, but eventually they travelled through Turkey by bus and into Syria.
4: And I would have left John a lot earlier before we reached Syria in 2013, but I didn't have a means to escape, especially with children. And I was very much afraid of being a single mother of four children. And I just... I didn't have like a rope to to hold on to, to to get out of the mess that I was in. As soon as I was able to escape that life, i I seized the opportunity.
1: For Tanya, like Osama before her, it was access to alternative views to reading materials and education that were critical to her de-radicalisation.
4: While John was taking me to Syria, there wasn't an iPhone at the time. And if there was, I didn't have access to one. I didn't know where we were going. So I thought I was going to Antioch. I didn't know I was going to Gaziantep. And I had no idea how close Gaziantep was to Syria. So I was really left in the dark. Once I had access to unlimited amounts of knowledge, it enlightened me. It opened my mind. I was like able to have a psychological rebirth. And then form a new identity based on what I chose, not what somebody pushed on me. I was for the idea of a caliphate for 10 years. Why did I run from the idea of Salafi's Implementing a caliphate in Syria. And the reason was is that I had so few rights as a Muslim woman as it was, I wasn't ready for them to take away everything from me. So while I was in Syria in 2013, when I got there, I started arguing with the Islamists, the militants that were in Azaz, especially the Bosnian insurgents that were there, they were the the toughest and the harshest of all the people I met. And they wanted me to cover head to toe. And I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't even believe that's a requirement in Islam. And then they would go to John and say, gosh, your wife has such a problem. She has such weak faith. She's so materialistic. Why don't you just divorce her? She's, she's not a good Muslim. She's, there's something wrong with her. Because I had critical thinking skills that they didn't have. And I'm thankfully, I think it's because I grew up in England. So I was a natural skeptic.
1: Eventually, and with great difficulty, Tanya managed to escape back to Turkey whilst she was heavily pregnant. She now lives in Texas.
4: It's hard for me to talk about, but I I had to go through a mental breakdown in order to be reborn, to just reinvent myself. and I had to sacrifice who I used to be in order to save myself from being devoured by danger had and to protect my children.
1: It worked for Tanya and Osama, but can de-radicalisation work for every extremist? We'll explore that question in just a moment, but first you can get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Search for thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
0: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze With thousands of former members of the Islamic State now cooped up in camps in northeast Syria, governments around the world are trying to work out what to do with them. Deradicalisation could be a panacea if it always worked. But can every extremist be de-radicalised? There are some high-profile and tragic examples of the process going
0: wrong. Good evening. Two people have died in what the Metropolitan Police are describing as a terrorist incident on London Bridge. The attacker was later shot dead.
1: Usman Khan, the terrorist responsible for the London Bridge attack, was a veteran of the Healthy Identity Intervention Programme that the psychologist Christopher Dean has been describing. He appeared to be responding well when he was released from prison in December 2018. Less than a year later... On the morning of the attack, he was attending a meeting at the Fishmonger's Hall about the success of the programme, when he suddenly lashed out.
2: We're aware that individuals can use deception throughout sentences and including within interventions as well. The things that they say may not align with what they truly think or feel. So clearly that is one of the challenges that we experience or can experience. There are strategies to try and prevent that things like strategies such as using probing questions where you're really trying to really understand and, and challenge what people are saying, given what information you know about them It's things like triangulating information, so are people saying the same thing in all parts of their life or to all people they're involved in, or are there discrepancies emerging between different people and what we're hearing that may indicate that Things aren't quite as they seem. And then there's understanding behavioural change as well. So are people just saying things? Is Are those things re- reflected in their behaviour? And are those changes in behaviour, you know, consistent as well?
1: It's not a perfect system. But Christopher Dean says deradicalisation programmes are still relatively successful.
2: This is internationally and in the UK. I mean, the re-offending rates of people who commit terrorist offences is roughly, and again, there's various research on this, but for most studies that have been done, it's roughly below 10%. Now, when we compare that to other offender groups, obviously, it's a much lower level of recidivism compared to other offenders. But we also have to appreciate that the offences that are committed tend to be very serious and obviously has huge implications for not only the immediate victims of these offences, but for wider society as well. But I think what is important to note is it just gives an indication that out of all those people who are released who've been convicted for these offences, those who do recidivate seem to be very much in the minority.
1: Osama Hassan believes, in theory, that everyone has the potential to be de-radicalised, but it's a trade-off and the risks a high
3: human nature being what it is kind of struggle between good and evil always that we should give people the maximum opportunities realistically just as we do for any other criminal behavior for the same reason that rehabilitation is the ethos of our criminal justice system of the prison system that we give people a second or third chance or many more it's the same with terrorism but in practice you know some people are so far gone that it would take a very long time to de-radicalise them, maybe many, many years of intensive work. And in in the meantime, they're too much of a threat to the public. What happened in practice is, and governments realise this around the world, is that the most extreme people will not even come back from the wars and from the battlefields. And that, this is where governments have decided to take them out on the battlefield. You actually kill them in drone strikes or, or others. And the British government has done that with dozens of British terrorists uh, and other... Governments have done that also, knowing that these people are very dangerous, and on the battlefield, you can legitimately eliminate that problem.
1: So do you view that as a legitimate outcome?
3: Well, you know, the rules for war and peace are different. So I do believe that, yes, it's, it's, you know, it's horrible. War is horrible. I've experienced war. I've been in a war zone myself. War is a horrible business. There are no winners in war, really. But uh, we do have to accept the reality, which I think everybody who's experienced war knows. In a war, either you die or your enemy dies. They're both trying to kill each other and you can't kind of shy away from that very difficult choice.
1: It's still it's uh, still quite surprising though, sort of hearing you know, an, an imam say that there are some people who won't be de-radicalised or, or it would take so long it would be such a risk that maybe it is better to take them out on the battlefield.
3: That, that's a sad reality. It is a sad reality. But it's obviously a different situation in peacetime, of course, when they come back. So when they're in prison... It, it is a much more difficult issue. And the example of the London bridge attacks that you mentioned, the Fishmonger's Hall one, and there was a similar one recently in Austria, of course, the Vienna attacker just a few weeks yes. ago. Yes,
0: Tuesday, November the 3rd, our main story for you. Three people are known to have died and many more are injured after gunmen opened fire in the centre of the Austrian capital, Vienna. He, he
3: also cheated the system in the sense that he convinced the Austrian authorities that he was de-radicalised.
1: I mean, is that something you worry about when you're trying to de-radicalise people? Do you you worry that they know what to say to make it look like they're listening, even if they're not?
3: Yes, and I think that is everyone's worst nightmare, is that somebody that you certify as de-radicalised or as much as possible, then goes on to commit a terrorist attack because, you know, that would be on your conscience. Yeah. So it's something we take very seriously. However, I have to say that we have to learn from these two examples and others, Fishmongers Hall and uh, the Vienna attacks, which is that uh, governments have to invest in the best expertise in these matters and make that expertise available as widely as possible. So for example, I've suggested something like a de-radicalization parole panel, where you have at least two or three experts in de-radicalization who decide together so whether or not somebody has been de-radicalised. It's all a bit ad hoc at the moment, you know, according to different prisons and how they operate. And it is possible for some of these diehard terrorists to actually cheat the system, you know, give the right answers to people. And what we find is actually many of our colleagues who are either not Muslim or they may be Muslim but they actually don't know in detail about Islamist ideology and the Islamist thinking, the Islamist mindset which justifies, you know, anything, including deception. But there are other people, there, you know, many of us, especially from that generation who, who fought jihad 30 years ago, yeah. who are not so easily fooled.
1: Osama Hassan has deradicalised, or attempted to deradicalise, between 50 and 100 young men and women.
3: I've never been fooled by any of them.
1: Really, you can tell if they're being straight with you
3: yes exactly and there have been one or two people who have not been straight and I've been able to report that just to say Mm. look and good police colleagues and others can see that as well now I think there needs to be a more concerted effort in this regard when it comes to de-radicalisation in prison etc there are hundreds of convicted terrorists most of them have actually at least disengaged uh, if not de-radicalised and these attacks are obviously very sad Vienna and Fishmongers Hall but they're actually they've been the exception mercifully rather than, than the norm
1: So, Osama, you've clearly seen this up close for years now. And it's so startling to hear you say that for some people, it's easier to kill them on the battlefield rather than allowing them to come back and trying to de-radicalise them. So what do you make of the foreign fighters and their families who went to join Islamic State? What should happen to them? Do you think we should bring them back?
3: I'm very clear that every government in the world, morally and legally, must bring these fighters back to their home countries because most of them are actually radicalised in their own countries and then they travelled off to Syria or Iraq so there were homegrown problems and if you don't bring them back we're effectively exporting terrorism to other countries. We bring them back and we prosecute them where we have the evidence etc and we bring down the full force of the law on them because if they've joined a terrorist group they are complicit in terrorist crimes and they, they deserve probably long sentences. But at the, at the same time, in prison then, they do have the opportunity to access deradicalization efforts, which in in my experience have been largely successful for those who've engaged with them. There are many terrorists who won't engage, and perhaps we should consider that they should never be released until they engage and successfully complete a de radicalization programme. It's not an easy thing to do, but you know very few things in life are easy and we have to do the right thing. Shamir Begum specifically I believe is actually ripe for, for de-radicalisation. Now Shimon Begum was a child when she was radicalised. Remember, Shamima given the right uh, investment uh, or the right approach I believe can be turned around also. She's so, shown signs of that already. Her latest media interviews last year with a, a cushion with the Union Jack on it, for example, and saying I want to come back to Britain. Britain is my country, etc.
1: But you talked about people sort of saying the right thing in order to you know to, to get Pass the law, for example. How can you be certain that she she means it? I mean,
3: people would be right to be suspicious given her previous interviews. But I think this illustrates the point. She was a child when she was radicalized. She's seen a lot of horrific stuff. It won't be easy at all. But the fact that ISIS have been largely defeated militarily, you know, that helps as well. It is a major argument we use in our de radicalization that these people believe they are the soldiers of God and God is on their side and that they will win no matter what. Well, clearly, the events on the ground actually disprove that. And I believe that we have the moral duty to try our best. And I do believe that Britain has the resources and the, the expertise to do so successfully. And we shouldn't think that. A young woman by herself is going to be a major threat uh, to the nation, you know, surely Britain is stronger than that, much stronger than that. I think actually most British people in the end would accept, however reluctantly, that it's the right thing to do, that we have to at least try it.
1: What should the government do and how are other countries dealing with the problem? on tomorrow's episode of Bring Me Home.
2: Well, in Austria, first of all, they would all face justice. We
4: have a relatively strict law according to membership of a terrorist organisation.
3: The French position is very much that they should remain there and if they're going to be put on trial, which they have to be eventually, that they should be put on trial in Iraq. It's a very political issue
0: also. President Macron has to keep these people, essentially, out of France.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Tanya Joya, Osama Hassan and Christopher Dean. The producer today was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Carla Patella. If you can, please do leave us a review. Let us know if you have any thoughts about what you've just heard or any stories that you'd like us to look at in the future. You can email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.
0: Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.